Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. August 17th, 1779. A man walked into a notary's office in the town of Cap Francais, on the northern coast of Saint-Domingue in the Caribbean. He was a former slave, in town to complete an important business transaction. In his hands was a lease agreement for a small coffee plantation just outside Cap that his son-in-law owned. Once notarized, the agreement would allow the man to lease the plantation for 1,000 livres per year, or around $3,000 a year today. That was no small amount. The man had been forced to sell a small piece of uncultivated property he already owned just to afford the first year's rent. But it was worth it. In leasing the plantation, he hoped to climb farther up the ladder of Saint-Domingue's complicated, racially-based social hierarchy. He would effectively have control over the estate for the next nine years. Coffee had recently come into high demand in Europe. If he played his cards right, he knew he'd be able to build real wealth as a prominent landowner. But the lease would also give him control of the estate's 13 slaves. Formerly enslaved himself, he would now be the plantation master. Now, this sort of contradiction would come to be one of the defining characteristics of this man, and the society he lived in. It was a society that was on the brink of revolution, and the new plantation master would play a vital role. His name was Toussaint Louverture. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. Welcome to Historical Figures, a podcast original. Every other Wednesday, we discuss a different person's lasting historical impact, unique personality, and impression on the world around them. You can find episodes of Historical Figures and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Historical Figures for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Historical Figures in the search bar. Our audio biographies cover big lives, but we like to focus on little-known facts. Today, we're discussing Toussaint Louverture, the leader of the Haitian Revolution of 1791. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. So let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. Now, back to the life of Toussaint Louverture. Born into slavery in the French colony of Saint-Domingue in the Caribbean, Toussaint Louverture rose to dizzying heights of fame and renown. He earned his freedom in his 30s and spent the rest of his life carefully straddling the line between his enslaved African roots and free white society. When revolution broke out in France, Louverture borrowed the ideas of liberty and equality to win the hearts and minds of those still enslaved on the island. And in the 1790s, Louverture, inspired by those French revolutionaries, emerged as a leading member of the most successful slave revolt in the Americas. 
This led to the formation of the country we know today as Haiti. Reconstructing Louverture's early days is challenging. Even though he wrote an autobiography just before his death, he doesn't mention his life before the revolution. As a result, prior details are murky. Historians have had to rely on government records, oral traditions, and the often unreliable testimony of those who knew him. Louverture's parents, Hippolyte and Pauline, were slaves on a sugarcane plantation just outside of Cap Francais, owned by a French widow named Elizabeth de Breda. The plantation was called Eau du Cap, and Hippolyte and Pauline had been enslaved there since about 1740. Hippolyte had been married with children when he lived in West Africa, but after being captured and sold into slavery in Saint-Domingue, he was separated permanently from his family and never saw them again. He eventually married Pauline after meeting her at Eau de Cap. Louverture was their first child together, and he was born on November 1, 1743, All Saints' Day in the Catholic Church. As such, the young couple named their son Toussaint, which means All Saints in French. Now, we should point out here that Haitian oral tradition places Louverture's birthday on May 20th, but many historians believe November 1st is more likely based on his name. According to legend, the midwife who delivered the baby boy foresaw his great destiny. She held him up to the sky and proclaimed, Boy, whites will kneel before you. Louverture's midwife likely practiced voodoo. In Saint-Domingue, many slaves followed the religion. Founded by West African slaves in Saint-Domingue, Vodou coupled traditional African religious practices with Catholicism, Islam, and ancestor worship. However, the Odukap plantation owners, the Breda family, had converted their slaves to traditional French Catholicism. As such, Louverture was raised in the faith and would remain a devout Catholic throughout the entirety of his life. Religion wasn't the only line between the two worlds he straddled. Louverture grew up speaking Fon, the native language of his father's West African Alada tribe. But he also learned to speak Creole, a local language that mixed French with African dialects. It was one of the first ways in which he sought to move up in the world. Creole was the language of Saint-Domingue's free people of color, while Fon was viewed as the language of slaves. Louverture would also eventually become fluent in French, and it was French that would ultimately provide him his last name many years later. Known simply as Toussaint from Breda during his early life, he adopted the last name Louverture during the Revolution. In French, it means the opening. According to one man who knew him, the name symbolized that Louverture was the one who would open the way to freedom for Saint-Domingue slaves. The Saint-Domingue that Louverture grew up in was deeply stratified, both socially and racially. At the top of the pecking order were the so-called Big Whites. These were the elite landowners and government authorities, many of whom stayed only long enough to get rich before going back to France. Below them were the Little Whites, who were typically laborers or small farm owners. All the Whites together made up only about 5% of the colony's population. In some areas, it was even less. Beneath them in the social hierarchy were the free people of color. This included people with mixed race heritage, as well as those with only African ancestry. As much as 10% of the plantations in Saint-Domingue were owned by free people of color. If they were successful, they could become quite wealthy trading in crops and slaves. At the bottom of the social ladder were, of course, the slaves. The only rights they had were enshrined in a 1685 law known as the Black Code. Slave owners were required to feed and clothe their slaves, and they were prohibited from killing, torturing, or sexually assaulting them. Well, if that constitutes having rights, I'd hate to see what not having rights looks like. Believe it or not, the Black Code was considered progressive for its time. Up until then, a slave owner could dispose of his property any way he saw fit, even if that meant torturing or killing a slave. The Black Code outlawed such behavior, and it also prohibited breaking up slave families. 
Furthermore, it gave citizenship to free blacks together with all the same rights and privileges of white citizens. But this is not to lessen the harshness of colonial slavery. Slaves could still be executed for seemingly small infractions, and life as a slave was grueling. And the biggest problem with the Black Code is that it was frequently not followed, and even more rarely enforced. Growing up, Louverture quickly realized that his owners would pick and choose if and when they wanted to follow the code. When Louverture was a teenager in the 1750s, he began learning to ride horses. This skill would serve him well in years to come. But as with all new skills, there was a learning curve. Brash to the point of recklessness, Louverture was hoping to impress his father one day by showing him that he could break an untamed horse. His father's Alada tribe, which made up a significant number of the slaves in Saint-Domingue, was known for its horsemanship. Calling his father's attention, Louverture broke into a run and hopped onto the back of the unbroken horse. Grabbing its neck and speaking to it the way he'd seen others do, he held on for dear life as the horse tried to buck him off. Uh, The horse ultimately won the Battle of Wills. Louverture ended up in the dirt with an injured leg. But young Louverture was not one to give up easily. Once his leg healed, he tried again. Eventually, he became a master horseman and was able to parlay his skill into a job in the stables, caring for the horses and pack animals. Louverture was so well-respected for his handling of horses, in fact, that he was able to get away with a lot of things that other slaves would have been punished for. On one occasion, a white plantation manager took a horse without Louverture's permission. When the man returned, Louverture met him at the stable and, before the man could dismount, cut the saddle strap with a knife. The manager fell to the ground at Louverture's feet. He stood and raised his cane as though to strike the impudent slave. But something on Louverture's face made him think twice about it. He eventually gathered his dignity and went on his way. According to the Black Code, the punishment for Louverture's actions that day should have been execution. Instead, he wasn't punished at all. His reputation as a reliable and valuable asset to the plantation brought him a certain level of respect and saved his life. Louverture could get away with behavior like this because he was valuable in a lot of ways. He was charming and intelligent, and thanks to help from an older slave on the plantation, he could also read. That was a rare asset among slaves. And despite his brashness, like in cutting the overseer's saddle, Louverture had a way of ingratiating himself with his masters. He knew how to play the game, to show deference when it was called for, but to display leadership and assertiveness when necessary. As Louverture entered young adulthood, he began to turn his attention to finding a wife. A marriage wasn't always a given among slaves in Saint-Domingue. In fact, many avoided marriage and child-rearing because they didn't want to raise children as slaves. Abortion and infanticide were quite common. But Louverture, with his deeply held Catholic values, rejected these practices and pursued a family life. Around 1760, he married his first wife, Cecile, and together they raised two sons and a daughter in slavery at Eau du Cap. This was another way in which he won his master's respect. He produced valuable new slaves for them. As he began raising his family, Louverture continued working in the stables. But it was around this time that he also developed a new skill, medicine. He had first begun dabbling in folk remedies by working with cattle and horses. As time went on, he began treating people as well, gaining a reputation as a gifted healer. Later, in the early days of the revolution, he would go by the title of General Doctor. In 1774, Louverture's parents, Hippolyte and Pauline, both died in close succession from what was described as chest disease. 
That meant Louverture was now the head of the clan, responsible not just for his wife and children, but also his four brothers and sisters. At 30 years old, Louverture had achieved more than most slaves in his position. He was a well-respected stable groom and folk doctor. He could speak three languages and could read and write. And he was the head of a family clan that included siblings, nieces and nephews, and godchildren. Fellow slaves trusted him and looked up to him. They saw in him the same keen intelligence and natural leadership that his masters saw. And soon, he was to receive a gift that so few enslaved people win, his freedom. Coming up, we'll explore the mystery of how and when Toussaint Louverture earned his freedom and how he navigated French colonial society as a free person of color. Now, back to the story. By the middle of the 1770s, Toussaint Louverture was in his early 30s. Through years of hard work, he was enjoying the best sort of situation that a slave in Saint-Domingue could reasonably hope for. He was held in high regard by his fellow slaves and had even earned some grudging respect from his white overseers. It was at this point in his life that he finally earned his freedom— Unfortunately, not much is actually known about the specific circumstances surrounding this transformative event. We know that O. de Cap got a new overseer in 1772, named Francois Bayon de Libertat. Louverture apparently impressed him very quickly. In fact, he impressed him so much that Bayon quickly promoted Louverture to coachman of the estate. This was a coveted position that was near the pinnacle of what any slave could hope to achieve. It was a position of power and influence that gave the holder intimate access to the administrators of the plantation. It likely allowed Louverture to further endear himself to his masters, specifically Bayon. And at some point during the next four years, it would seem, Bayon rewarded Louverture's loyalty by granting him his freedom. We know this happened by 1776, as a birth record from that year listed him as a godfather for a child born in Eau de Cap. The same document notes that he was a free person of color. The details are likely juicy, but are sadly lost to history. Although we assume that Bayonne granted Louverture's freedom willingly, as Louverture would later refer to his former master as the virtuous Bayonne. For his part, Bayonne stated, Having fathomed the character of Toussaint, I entrusted to him the principal branch of my management. Never was my confidence in him disappointed. After earning his freedom, Louverture stayed on at Oducap as the coachman, now earning a salary. This was likely because, despite having earned his freedom, his family had not. His wife and children were still enslaved at the plantation. And despite being at the top of the food chain at Eau de Cap, Louverture was now at the bottom of the pack in the colony's social hierarchy of free people. He intended to change that so he could afford to purchase his loved one's freedom. He didn't waste any time getting started. Saving his meager salary, he was able to purchase his wife's freedom by the end of 1776. In doing so, any future children they had would be free. Eventually, he also freed both of his teenaged sons. The Louverture family was finding its footing in a stark caste system, and Toussaint was always on the lookout for opportunities to advance. In his work as a coachman, Louverture began to build up a network of friends, confidants, and acquaintances. A carriage ride was an opportunity to get to know people. And Louverture became acquainted with many of the people who would later play significant roles in the revolution. One of these people was Georges Biassou, the man who would later be his comrade in arms. He also met the man who would eventually become the first emperor of Haiti, Jean-Jacques Dessalines. At the time, however, they met because Louverture was his slave master. On August 17, 1779, Toussaint Louverture leased a small coffee plantation formerly owned by his son-in-law, together with the estate's 13 slaves. 
One of those slaves was the future Jacques I of Haiti, Jean-Jacques Dessalines. Nothing is known about their interactions as master and slave, but considering what would ultimately happen in their relationship, Dessalines must have harbored grievances against his former master. Well, in any case, running a plantation himself and overseeing his own set of slaves was a way for Louverture to get on the path of upward social mobility. Such a decision can be difficult to understand from a modern perspective. You can say that again. The reality is that in 18th century Saint-Domingue, slavery was the social norm, as it had been throughout much of human history. Enlightenment notions like self-determination and the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness were either unknown entirely or merely philosophical pipe dreams. People like Toussaint Louverture, living in the real world of a slave-based plantation economy, didn't have time for philosophizing. They had to figure out how to make their way within the framework of the society in which they lived. Furthermore, racism was so deeply embedded in society that it wasn't limited to just whites. Individuals of mixed European and African ancestry resented being lumped in with the freedmen of only African descent intended to avoid them. Depending on the lightness of their skin, some even happily passed for white and completely rejected any African ancestry. Similarly, freedmen like Toussaint Louverture had to disassociate with slavery as much as possible if they wanted to get ahead. For a freed man to succeed in colonial Saint-Domingue, he had to act the part of a free man, and that often meant owning slaves. Well, even among the slaves, there was a hierarchy. Locally born slaves like Louverture viewed themselves as superior to newly arrived slaves from Africa. Well, this was reflected in their preferred local language of Creole over the African language of Fawn. Louverture was a product of the place and time in which he lived. He sought to free his relatives and friends from slavery, but he had no serious moral qualms in overseeing a plantation and its enslaved laborers. He would later downplay his own role in owning slaves and would eventually come to embrace abolitionism. But for the time being, Louverture was in a difficult spot. He resented the treatment he received from whites, but longed to be a part of their class. He fully rejected the African slave religion of Vodou in favor of French Catholicism and even preferred the dress of a rich French planter. He eventually adopted French as his preferred daily language. But Louverture never fully gave up his traditional languages. He maintained his fluency in both Fawn and Creole, using them to ingratiate himself with slaves and other freed men. It was this ability to straddle two worlds that gave him an edge in Saint-Domingue society. As the 1770s unfolded, Toussaint Louverture and other people of color began to find themselves in progressively worse circumstances. The Black Code had promised that free people of color were entitled to all the same rights and privileges as native-born white Frenchmen. But as with so much else in the Black Code, and what was true on paper was rarely true in practice. And as time went on, the Black Code's promises became less and less relevant. Saint-Domingue's local government passed laws aimed at restricting the rights of free people of color. Eventually, the colony even denied slaves and people of color the right to use French first names, although this apparently was not enforced retroactively. Still, the colonial leaders were attempting to stop people of color from assimilating into French society. Although we don't know what Toussaint Louverture explicitly thought about these changes, it couldn't have sat well with him. Like all the people of color in Saint-Domingue, both free and enslaved, Louverture was beginning to realize that things were only going to get worse. White violence against slaves was growing. In 1780, a group of whites were out looking for runaway slaves and shot a man who turned out to be a coachman, like Louverture, on his way back home from work. The shooter received no more than a slap on the wrist. Black lives were increasingly expendable. For Louverture, all of this was made worse by a growing economic crisis that resulted from the American Revolution. Even though the United States felt half a world away, the war had been brought to Haiti's doorstep. 
France had decided to support the American colonists by declaring war on Britain. Britain, in turn, immediately blockaded French ports like Cap in Saint-Domingue. This caused all of Saint-Domingue's crop prices to crash as export goods sat in warehouses unsold. Well, the timing was terrible for Louverture, who was no longer able to afford his lease on the coffee estate. By 1781, when he was 38 years old, he was forced to cancel what was supposed to have been a nine-year lease. He also had to pay his son-in-law dearly for the deaths of two slaves during his tenure. Louverture was emotionally crushed by his failure. He went back home to Eau du Cap and his old job as a coachman. But things weren't about to get any easier. Having spent a lot of time away from home while running the coffee plantation, Louverture's marriage had been slowly falling apart. And by 1782, it was over. However, it wasn't long before Louverture became involved with a woman named Suzanne. Suzanne was an enslaved laundress at Eau de Cap and was about 36 years old. Their first son was born in 1784. It should be noted that while it seems that this relationship was consensual, Suzanne was still a slave who would have had a hard time saying no to the advances of a master or freedman. While reserving judgment for details we don't have, the power dynamic is important to point out. For Louverture's part, his relationship with Suzanne and the birth of their son was likely the high point of the next few years. Later that year, Louverture's son-in-law died, leaving Louverture's daughter a widow. The following year, his oldest son, also named Toussaint, followed his brother-in-law to the grave. Despite these hardships, Saint-Domingue's economy began to rebound after the conclusion of the American Revolution in 1783. And with the improving economy came a new opportunity for Louverture and his family. Though still employed as the head coachman at Eau du Cap, he took on the additional responsibility of master of the estate's mills. He was being entrusted with more responsibility and more leadership. Though not yet living by the high social standards that Louverture aspired to, his life in the late 1780s had grown comfortable. But all that began to change in 1789 when the plantation overseer, Francois Bayonne, was fired for corruption and bad management. A new overseer, Sylvain de Villevalet, was brought in with instructions to put the plantation back in line. The new overseer turned the estate's profits around, but at a high cost to the estate's workers. No new employees or slaves were brought on. Instead, working hours were extended, and everyone was expected to do more. Without knowing it, the Bredas had planted the seeds of revolution in the hearts of their slaves, and especially Toussaint Louverture. Everyone in Saint-Domingue knew what had just taken place in the American colonies. The colonists had thrown off the yoke of their British overlords and declared themselves free. They had stirred up sentiments of liberty, democracy, and self-rule. These ideas had been brewing in Saint-Domingue throughout the 1780s. Then, in July of 1789, revolutionaries stormed the Bastille in Paris, inaugurating what would become the French Revolution. Revolutionary ideas were already trickling into French Saint-Domingue. Now, the floodgates opened. It was sometime during this period that Louverture began reading the works of Guillaume Reynal, a French Catholic priest who wrote about the plight of slaves. Reynal warned whites that their treatment of slaves and people of color would lead to an uprising. And once they were in charge, their vengeance on their former white masters would be horrific. He stated, the black code will vanish. How terrible will the white code be? The only thing holding off this eventuality was the need of a great leader among the people of color. He wrote, Where is he, that great man? Where is he, that new Spartacus? He will appear and raise the sacred standard of liberty. Louverture read this passage over and over and began to see himself in Reynal's words. 
like Moses, like Spartacus. He was the rebel leader who would rise up to lead his people to freedom. As these ideas percolated in his mind, an incident occurred in late 1790 that would push him past the breaking point. A small rebellion led by free man Vincent Auger broke out in the colony with the hope of obtaining voting rights for free men of color. But the rebellion was quickly squashed. Auger and the other leaders found themselves outnumbered, and they surrendered, begging for mercy. But the whites who overpowered them weren't in a forgiving mood. Instead, they put Auger on a scaffold and slowly stretched him and the other rebel leaders until all the bones in their bodies were broken. This was a particularly gruesome form of execution meant to humiliate and dishonor the victim. The execution wheel was normally reserved for slaves who had risen up against their masters. Now, it effectively told all people of color that these dissenters were no different than those still in bondage. This was the last straw for Toussaint Louverture. He could no longer keep his head down and play the role of subservient plantation employee. It was time to step into the role he'd envisioned for himself. It was time to burn Saint-Domingue to the ground. Coming up, Louverture leads the most successful slave revolt in world history. Now, back to the story. In the early days of the French Revolution in 1789 and 1790, tensions ran high in the French colony of Saint-Domingue. While whites fought amongst themselves about how to navigate the political situation in France, the mistreatment of slaves and free people of color in the colony gradually worsened. Many whites feared the democratically-minded revolutionaries would try to abolish slavery. So they passed new laws to further erode the rights of free people of color and ensure that slavery persisted in the colony. They brutally put down a small revolt in 1790 and executed all its leaders despite pleas for mercy. The spirit of revolution was simmering in Toussaint Louverture. One morning during this time, 47-year-old Louverture was returning home from Mass, prayer book in hand, when a white man approached him on the street. Without provocation, the man began beating Louverture with a cane. He shouted that people like Louverture shouldn't be allowed to read. Reading was reserved for white men. Louverture was strong and not easy to push around, but he also knew how to pick his battles. Now wasn't the time to stand up for his rights. He begged the man for forgiveness and hurried away, his clothes bloodied from the assault. But he never forgot the incident. In fact, he kept his bloody shirt as a reminder. By 1791, Louverture had begun actively planning a revolt. But the 48-year-old was faced with two serious problems. First, he had to convince slaves to rise up en masse. A local rebellion wasn't enough. And second, he had to convince them to rise up despite the possibility of death. So he decided to tell a little white lie. Instead of framing the revolt as a rebellion against authority, he described it as a sort of counter-revolution. Slaves needed to rise up in order to stop the whites from rebelling against France. Louverture told them that France, and especially the beleaguered French king, Louis XVI, were their allies. It was the local whites, the ones in control of the colonial assembly, who were dangerous. If they succeeded in declaring independence from France, slaves and free people of color would only continue to be mistreated. Trusting a king was easy for the slaves of Saint-Domingue, which was rooted in their historical trust of monarchies back in Africa. Louverture also told them that the king was considering abolishing slavery. Furthermore, Louverture claimed he had documents from the king authorizing the rebellion. 
Slaves, of course, weren't taught to read, so they had no reason to doubt what Louverture was telling them, especially if he waved the supposed written documents in their faces. Louverture promised that if they succeeded in overthrowing the white revolutionaries, the king would reward them by reducing their work week to just four days. The slaves bought the story, and on August 14, 1791, a group of some 200 slave leaders met on a plantation near Cap. When they voted on who would lead the revolt, Louverture declined to put himself forward. For now, he preferred to stay in the background, controlling things from a distance. He was undoubtedly also thinking of his own safety and that of his family should the revolt fail. Instead, his old friend from the hospital, Georges Biassou, was chosen to be the public face of the rebellion. Many of the people that Louverture had networked with over his years as a coachman, like Biassou and Jean-Jacques Dessalines, now came forward to join the cause. A week later, on August 21, 1791, a large religious service was held in the woods outside Cap. It was presided over by a prominent local Vodou priest and served as a way to inspire slaves for the upcoming fight. Animals were sacrificed, and the participants took a sacred oath. This ceremony is often considered the first act in what would eventually be called the Haitian Revolution. The following day, the revolution began in earnest. On that day and the days to follow, slaves all across Saint-Domingue began to rise up, killing their overseers and taking white women and children hostage. They burned down hundreds of plantations across the colony. By the end of the month, more than a thousand estates had been destroyed and the revolution was far from over. Around 300 whites were killed in the first few months of the rebellion. This was a significant amount in a colony where whites made up only a fraction of the population. White leaders in Cap attempted to maintain order by rounding up suspected ringleaders and executing them, but this only enraged the rebels even more. They eventually set up camp near the place where Louverture had once had his coffee plantation. He and his family joined them there. On the outset, Louverture appears to have lain low, working in the background to plan and advise, but not publicly taking part in the violence. He continued his old habit of straddling both worlds, working towards revolution, but never burning his bridges with the white rulers. Although that didn't mean he wasn't against performing acts of violence himself. In fact, when the revolution was in full swing, Louverture came across the man who beat him with a cane years before. The man who had given him the bloody shirt he still kept in a trunk at home. Louverture decided it was time to return the favor and killed him. In these early days, Louverture and his comrades were not pushing for a true revolution and had not yet called for emancipation. This was largely because Louverture continued to frame the fight as part of the royalist cause in France. Louverture's rebels wore the white cockade of the French king on their shirts, as well as crosses of Saint Louis, the king's patron saint. In his letters, Louverture began referring to himself as general of the armies of the king. By the summer of 1792, the number of slaves in revolt was over 10,000. And with the threat of war with Spain on the horizon, Colonial leaders tried to appease the rebels by agreeing to formally recognize the equal rights of free people of color. But by then, it was too late. Louverture knew that there was no going back. By rebelling and burning plantations, they'd crossed a line that couldn't be erased. The fight was no longer just about the rights of free black men. It was about the rights of slaves as well. Momentum was on their side. There was no reason to stop now, especially since the white leaders of the colony couldn't be trusted to stay true to their word. Still, the revolt faltered for a time after the colonial assembly agreed to grant free people of color their full civil rights. Louverture, Biassou, and the other leaders of the movement worked tirelessly to keep the rebels engaged and focused on the ultimate goal. It helped that they had numbers on their side. 
as many as 100,000 slaves had joined the rebellion, and the numbers continued to swell. After the initial flurry of plantation burning and military engagements, the battle between the rebels and the local military stagnated into a stalemate. Little progress was made throughout 1792. And then the unthinkable happened. That autumn, word came from France that Louis XVI had been deposed. Louverture could no longer characterize the rebellion as a mere counter-revolution in the name of the king. It was now a fight to the death for control of the colony. After Louis's death, France was attacked on all sides. Both Great Britain and Spain declared war on France, which meant that the French colony of Saint-Domingue was up for grabs. Spain had a tactical advantage. It already controlled the eastern half of Hispaniola with the colony Santo Domingo. That made Spain an obvious choice of ally for Louverture and his rebels. In March of 1793, he visited Santo Domingo and formally aligned his rebel slaves with the Spanish army. This was a move that may have seemed strange to many of the slaves in Louverture's camp. Revolutionary France, after all, was in the process of abolishing slavery and granting equal rights to people of color. Spain, on the other hand, still permitted slavery. But Louverture and his colleagues didn't trust the French revolutionaries, and neither did the slaves who made up the majority of the rebellion. With roots deep in African monarchy and tribalism, they were inclined to see the overthrown king as a paternalistic hero, ingloriously defeated by vile enemies. He was someone they could relate to. Furthermore, with all the upheavals going on in France, who could say what France's position would be in the future? At war with virtually all of Europe, France might not even exist in the future. Spain, on the other hand, was still a Catholic nation governed by a relative of the martyred king. They were a powerful patron that could help Louverture achieve his goal of a free and independent Saint-Domingue. Meanwhile, the French were fighting each other in the streets of Cap. Local whites, attempting to retain control of the colony, found themselves facing off with French troops freshly arrived in the city. These French troops came to support the big whites, or those who sided with the monarchy. Meanwhile, the little whites, the white tradesmen and laborers, sided with the French revolutionaries. This infighting, which originated in France and was now spilling into the colony, played into the hands of Louverture and his growing rebel army. With the white classes fighting themselves, it gave Louverture and his men the chance to take over more of the island. Now part of the Spanish military, Louverture's rebels began branching out from their stronghold, moving across Saint-Domingue and capturing towns and villages along the way. Louverture's fame as a general began to spread as his men achieved victory after victory. Thanks to their Spanish allies, he and his men were now trained in the art of combat. They were no longer marauding rebel slaves, but a professional army unit led by Louverture. Louverture took advantage of his position within the Spanish army to begin buying up real estate in Santo Domingo. He sent his wife Suzanne and their children there for safety. Over the next year, his farms there brought in large profits. By 1794, at the age of 51, he was one of the wealthiest landowners in the region. However, he soon began to feud with his old friend, Georges Biasu, for leadership among the rebels. They disagreed on how to reorganize the plantation system, with Biasu preferring a form of serfdom that Louverture felt was little more than reimagined slavery. They ultimately had a falling out over the issue. Some of Biasu's men attacked Louverture and a group of his own followers, killing several of them, including Louverture's brother. When he appealed for help from Spain, they sided with Biasu and detained Louverture's family under house arrest. This would prove to be a huge mistake. In that moment, Spain made an enemy out of Louverture, an ambitious man who was always two steps ahead. While he publicly continued to support Spain and fought for them, he began secretly negotiating with the French. 
After rescuing his family from Santo Domingo, he turned over one of his captive cities to the French without a fight. And he managed to do this without the Spanish knowing he was responsible. He also began corresponding with the British, who had their eyes on Saint-Domingue and its valuable resources. He finally made a clean break from Spain in the summer of 1794 and officially joined the French, though Biasu and his forces stayed with the Spanish. Louverture's switch was made easier by the fact that earlier in the year, the French had officially abolished slavery in all its colonies. Now all people of color were supposed to have the same rights and privileges as native-born citizens of the new French Republic. With his 4,000 soldiers now fighting under the French flag, Louverture turned his attention to defeating his old Spanish allies. But when the British landed in Saint-Domingue in the fall of 1794, Louverture found himself fighting another enemy. For the next five months, he and the French fought against both the Spanish and the British for control of the island. By spring 1795, the Spanish had been driven back into Santo Domingo, and in June, they and the French agreed to a peace treaty. George Biasu decided to remain with the Spanish when they retreated from Saint-Domingue. For him, the revolution was over. But Biasu's men felt they still had work to do. Most of them defected to Louverture's army, and with the added numbers, the revolution was able to keep fighting the British. Now 52 years old, Louverture began to emerge as the de facto leader of Saint-Domingue's people of color. He oversaw the return of laborers to their plantations, where they were now paid employees rather than slaves. He also continued his military exploits, containing the British threat and working together with the French military governor, Etienne Laveau, to pacify the colony. In 1796, a French army commander attempted to overthrow Governor Laveau, invading Cap and taking the governor hostage. Louverture and his troops mounted a rescue mission, defeating the usurper and restoring Laveau to his position. As a reward, Laveau named Louverture lieutenant governor of the colony. In 1798, Laveau left for France to take his seat as the colony's representative to the French National Assembly. That left Louverture in sole control of the colony. The same year, he successfully negotiated a treaty with the British and they finally removed their troops from the island for good. In the meantime, Louverture had turned his eyes onto the Spanish colony of Santo Domingo, which he knew from firsthand experience was much weaker than Saint-Domingue. In 1801, he invaded the colony and easily subdued it, deposing the Spanish governor. Louverture, a former slave, was now master of all of Hispaniola. In the spring, with an assembly made up of mostly whites and a few biracial freemen, Louverture drew up a new constitution, which eventually went into effect on July 7, 1801. While the document refrained from proclaiming outright independence from France, Louverture used it to subtly rebrand himself in the image of the new French leader, Napoleon Bonaparte. It made the 58-year-old Louverture governor-general for life, with essentially dictatorial power. In what was clearly a series of compromises with the remaining big whites on the island, the document went on to outlaw Vodou in favor of Louverture's preferred French Catholicism. And while slavery was forever banned, the Constitution did permit traders to bring enslaved Africans into the colony. The slaves would have to be paid and could slowly buy their freedom, then becoming salaried employees, essentially indentured servitude. Napoleon was horrified when he learned of what Louverture had done without his authority. In 1802, he sent troops to the island to capture Louverture and restore direct French authority. During the ensuing battles, Many of Louverture's former allies abandoned him, including his top commander, Jean-Jacques Dessalines. Though Louverture was widely revered by the former slaves he'd helped to free, 
Others felt he'd gone too far in establishing his own powers. The reintroduction of slaves as indentured servants was especially troubling to leaders who had just spent a decade fighting to establish liberty for all. This seemed to mark a breaking point for Dessalines. He aided the French in capturing Louverture. He was immediately taken to France for trial, the only time in his life he ever left the island of Hispaniola. And sadly, he would never see his homeland again. Louverture died in April of 1803, shortly before his 60th birthday, while awaiting trial in a French dungeon. He was buried in the fort where he was kept prisoner. His grave was later looted and his remains were scattered. An unceremonious end to a living titan. Meanwhile, in Hispaniola, Dessalines broke from the French shortly after watching his former master hauled off in chains. After rumors began circulating that the French intended to re-establish slavery in Saint-Domingue, he went on the offensive, taking the reins of leadership. Under Dessalines, the French were finally expelled and Saint-Domingue declared its independence on January 1, 1804. Dessalines changed the name to Haiti, the traditional indigenous name for Hispaniola. Later that year, Dessalines was crowned as the new independent nation's first emperor. Toussaint Louverture did eventually find his way home through the annals of Haitian lore. Like George Washington, he was revered as a patriarch, a paragon of liberty, and ultimately, a man who gave his life for Haiti's independence. Like many great heroes of the past, Louverture was a complicated figure, but despite his personal ambitions and sometimes questionable motives, it is undeniable that he set Haiti on the path to freedom and led its people in the only successful slave revolt in world history. Thanks for tuning in to Historical Figures. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Historical Figures and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Historical Figures for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Historical Figures on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Historical Figures in the search bar. Historical Figures was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Historical Figures is written by Scott Christmas and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy. <laughs>